0: Do you, go, do you go grocery shopping Dad? I do
1: go grocery shopping, guys.
0: Really? Yeah. What do you buy at the grocery store? It's like Fritos, Cheez-Its, pork. Fritos, Cheez-Its, pork. Only when
1: I'm really hungry. <laughs> the worst thing to do is go to the grocery store like, oh, I need to stop and get something for the grocery. And I need, okay, you need milk. Let's get milk, okay. So you go in to get milk and it's like on your way home and you're starved and you come out of there and you realize you have $100 worth of stuff and you couldn't make a meal if you tried it.
0: Absolutely, yes. Don't go grocery shopping when you're hungry, but you do get a lot of not healthy fun snacks when you do it that way, right?
1: Yes. My, my primary thing at the grocery store is ham or ham sandwiches. <laughs> you got to make sure you got the ham for the ham sandwiches. Kind
0: of, are there any pig vets out there that are vegetarian? No. I bet there's one. They're know, you are have- probably too scared to admit it. Because no,
1: you have to sign a card as part of the deal. You have to agree to eat pork. You're maybe. a red meat eater? Yeah, yes, you're a red meat eater. No, not just a red meat eater. You must specifically agree to eat pork.
0: What is, but pork isn't always red, is it?
1: Well, us call the red meat, but.
0: Why, why do we call it red meat and white meat?
1: Uh, I don't know. Chicken is kind of white, though. Okay. Yeah. So I definitely the amount think of beef is red, yeah.
0: but. And then in chicken, there's dark and light.
1: It's yes. really interesting. Okay. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim Lowe.
0: And I'm Dr. Ashley Mytek.
1: and welcome to the Round Bar.
0: I was gonna buy green beans today and was gonna saute them and a bag of green beans it was very expensive at a grocery store. Um, why are we seeing these prices go up and supply issues and lack of avail- availability with food?
1: Well, I I don't know if anybody really knows actually, right? This has been a hot topic, right? We've had the president talking about how he's going to solve meat packing consolidation and spend a billion dollars and blah blah blah, and you know, right? We've got all these conversations around that. But isn't
0: meat packing already really consolidated?
1: Oh yeah, it's the the big four. Yes, on both pork and the big four and beef. Which there's some overlap with JBS and Tyson. But um, I I think when we think about, do we
0: even need to eat meat? Or is that a different podcast?
1: That's a different podcast, and that's a silly question. Of course we do. but, Wait, but we we can, can,
0: we, We're going to save in the future we're going to do our crickets one. Okay, Cricket, we can do how crickets how in how the future. Yeah. How we can save the world yeah. by all eating crickets.
1: Um, I think it's a complicated question about why is food so expensive right now. So if we look at farm gate – so we think about this, Ashley, and, and we think about prices. We think about them in multiple levels, and the phrase you'll hear is farm gate price.
0: What is farm gate?
1: So that's the price. Generally, we accept that the producer, the farmer, uh, is getting paid. So, you know, at the gate of the farm, what was the price that came out? And that's kind of a generic term that you choose. So what's the producer price or the farm gate price? And then we've got retail price. And then you've got all the processing in the middle. And so, right, so there's a lot of things that go on. So. I think there's, you know, a lot of things at play. And I, I found it interesting. You said you went to one specific grocery store, which we both shop at and we love, and it's low cost. Um, and you could still buy a bag of broccoli for 99, frozen broccoli for 99 cents or whatever. But yet you go to the other side of the store, literally across the store, and there's fresh broccoli, and it's now two seventy nine, and it used to be $1.79 or whatever, right? And so it's really gone up. So why is that? So I, I think we're looking at... Multiple things, and maybe we have to unpack how the food supply chain works, right? So frozen stuff, um, when we think about frozen, frozen broccoli, frozen green beans, frozen meat, we can harvest that and put it in the freezer. And so it's not subject to kind of short-term supply and demand disruptions. But everything that we have that's fresh, so particularly fresh vegetables, but meats to that some extent as well. Right. Those things are really subject to kind of the vagaries of the supply chain um, in the short term. And so, right, we, we if you have fresh broccoli, it, it, that's perishable. You can't make fresh broccoli, You can't harvest a, a head of broccoli in Florida or wherever we were raising broccoli today and put it um, in the grocery store six months from now. Right. It's it's got a short a couple of weeks or something. Right. Maybe a few weeks. Um, so you've got to get that harvested from the field, harvested, processed in some kind of a container, right, whether it's a box or these individual wrap things that we get today, and then to the grocery store in, in your cart and out the store. And so that's, you know, a short time window. And the same kind of is true for meat, although we can freeze meat, but a lot of the meat is kind of fresh. Vegetables are the most susceptible. So why are your green beans $4, 5 $6? It used to be $2 or whatever, right? I mean, that, I think that's the kind of what we're talking about. So one, green beans aren't in season in the U.S. right now, right? So there's nowhere in the U.S. that we could raise green beans. Um, maybe the southern tip of Florida, but you know there's not a lot of area that we could raise green beans and have fresh green beans and I guess probably in California. So some of that's coming from Mexico. So the supply chain's long. <laughs> um, so we've got all these things we've seen with disruption in the supply chain, right? We have workers, people that the great resignation, people that want to drive trucks. So, okay, I don't want to work. I'll
0: on- drive a truck. I'll drive a truck any day of the, the
1: week. Yeah, I just want
0: to push the horn. Yeah, you know? well, there's a
1: lot of days that sitting in a truck for eight hours sounds pretty attractive, actually. Um, I'm not sure I'd want to do it forever, and thank God people want to do that. But, you know, right? You're like, okay, that could be better. We could,
0: drive a, we could drive a tractor or a truck and listen to this podcast
1: while we're driving. You, you could day. do that, yeah, and then, then you would want to quit driving. But, right, so we have these things that are, have nothing to do with food supply that just – I mean, truckers haul stuff. And whether that's cars from California or, you know, not, not loads of things coming up boats of California or cars or whether it's whether it's vegetables coming out of Mexico, you know, tractors hook onto trailers and pull things and, and reefer trailer, refrigerator trailers that we move vegetables and we move meat in. They're refrigerating, they can haul anything, right? They can also haul a box trailer and haul goods or whatever. So as we lose truckers, there's a short-term issue with what does it cost? <laughs> So the cost of trucking has gone up as fuel has gone up, but mostly because drivers have gone up. So it used to be, we used we think about trucking costs per loaded mile. So how much does it cost to haul it for a mile? You know, and that used to be pretty routinely was in the two and a half dollar range. And today that might be over $4 uh, to haul that same. So semi hauls plus or minus um, 25, 26 tons. And so, you know, that that weight or that volume that I'm hauling Instead of costing two and a half dollars to move it a mile, now costs four dollars to move it a mile. And so there's some, and that's because we don't have truckers. When fuel has gone up, and you know, blah blah blah. Okay, so that's capitalism. The idea that that you know, supply and demand, and we all had to have economics at some point. So you've got that supply. I and,
0: didn't. There's zero economics in this brain.
1: That doesn't surprise me. That's uh, not a prerequisite. <laughs> <for best school. laughs> Note to, That's note why to, I come uh,
0: to your office all the time to ask you economics questions. So, but, questions.
1: But you've heard of the idea of supply and demand. And so what supply and demand is, is right, those curves, when we think about supply and demand curves, they're not straight lines, they're curves. And so as supply goes up, price goes down. As demand goes up, price goes up. And so... um What have we seen happen? Well, we've seen both of those happen. We've seen repositioning of the supply curve in that we've got a reduction in the supply curves because we don't have labor. So part of that's trucking. We can't get it all. Part of it is we don't have people in the field to harvest vegetables or we don't have people in packing plants or we don't have people to work in the factory to bag um, frozen um, broccoli. So we've got a reduction in the supply curve. We've also got a reduction in the supply curve because we're eating out a lot less. So although we're eating out more than we were two years ago, we are eating a lot more at home. And so demand for food at home, grocery sales have gone way up. And I don't remember the exact numbers. I haven't looked at them in a bit. But the the idea was is that we ate about half of our meals outside the home prior to the pandemic. That's kind of roughly the number. About half of our food was half of our dollars were spent outside the home. Half our meals were. And so that number, obviously, when the pandemic hit, went to dang near zero, right? I mean, it wasn't, but we just, because we couldn't eat out, okay, we had to eat at home. And so the supply chains for restaurants and grocery stores are very, very different, different, right? It's packaged differently. It's made differently. And so, okay, so we had to pivot. And there was this short term, and that was the April, May bubble of 2020 that, yes, we could make bacon, but the bacon, you couldn't go to the store and buy bacon because – like 70% of the bacon was consumed in restaurants compared to home use. And all of a sudden 100 percent of it's being consumed at home. You know, if you just think about it, you go to a restaurant, bacon's got a lot of fat and it's got flavor. And so I can make a meal more tasty with a little bit of bacon. Um, and you know, if you're home cooking by yourself, oh yeah, can I put that out there? But I'm not gonna do that, right? I mean, and but what happened was, right, okay, people are eating in home, so they started consuming bacon at home instead of consuming bacon out.
0: What's your favorite way to make bacon? By the way, do you put it in the microwave or you put it in a, like a frying pan?
1: In yeah, a frying pan.
0: You don't yeah. eat it that plastic thing, you know? You can. No, make not loose not loose. pre.
1: No, <laughs> my God, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it goes. And uh, these people want to bake it. and I suppose that's easier, and it it properly goes in a frying pan. And you save the grease to cook other things in. Let's just be clear. Um, but. We think about, right, so what happened was, right, okay, so we're making bacon in one, in basically in 20-pound boxes because that's how restaurants buy it, in a sheet in 20-pound boxes because they're going to cook it in an oven. And the next thing you know, we need it all in one-pound packages to, you know, what we buy at the store. So, okay, we had to pivot that around. We didn't have enough machines, and so that supply chain had to catch up. That was kind of the short-term bubble. But what's happened now is is that we're kind of still eating the same amount at home, plus we're starting to eat out more. So it's this big pivot in the chain. So we've had this increase in demand in grocery. And we've had a reduction in supply because our manufacturing process isn't quite geared up for grocery consumption. It's really geared up for restaurants. And we've had trucking and we've had these issues and we can't get stuff harvested in terms of vegetables, et cetera, et cetera. So there's kind of been this jump. And then when we, I started with the idea of price elasticity and it's really important. So when supply changes 1%, Price doesn't change one percent. It's a curve. Price changes a multiple of that. And that's what we call elasticity, price elasticity. So the number, I can tell you the number for pigs on farms. So the farm gate price, we go back to that, what farmers are getting paid. If supply goes up one percent, price basically goes down three percent. Say that again. Supply goes up one percent, yeah, price goes down three. So three to one ratio. Okay. So small. The idea of price elasticity—you don't know, get you know about the numbers. So sometimes that number is really big, sometimes it's small. But the idea is, is that a, a small change in supply or demand is magnified in the price. When you're on a curve, not on a flat line, you get these big swings in price with small changes in supply and demand. So we've had what appears to be small changes in supply and demand. Yeah, they were big for a bit. And we've adjusted. But even those small changes really have inflationary pressure or price pressure, we've had increased demand, decreased supply at the same time. So we've got a double whammy, a reset of that supply-demand curve. And so now we've got this higher pressure on price um, than we've seen in the past. And so the, the number I saw is I think grocery prices are going to be up 6% next year, this year, 2022. Um, they were up 6 eight, ten 8%, 10% last year. Meat's been up 18%. I don't know where vegetables have been at.
0: Why is meat uh, go uh, go up eighteen percent?
1: Supply and demand.
0: I have a question about ham. When we were talking about supply and demand and things like that, so do the people who make pork, pigs, hams, um, they they project the certain times of the year where there's going to be a higher demand for ham, right? Like Easter. So then all the poor pig vets have to get all these pigs pregnant, like, at the exact right time, so they have all this extra ham in the market? No. That's not how it works? That's not
1: how it works. There's (laughs) this thing called a freezer. (laughs) So
0: So how long can you keep a ham frozen?
1: uh, Well, we don't have to keep it frozen that long, right? So if you think about... how we run the supply chain. So meat, we've got to either eat or freeze within a couple of weeks, right? We just cannot stay in the fr- fridge that long. So, um, and ham's a cured product, right? So it was intentionally, and we don't cure it like we used to, which we, right? We've talked about this before. We cured ham to make it process. And basically today, we have to keep the ham refrigerated because it's healthier. We like the taste better, but. a um, pig's only got two legs, right? He has he's got, four legs. Well, he's got two back legs. He's got two hams. And so, and he's got two shoulders and he's got two loins and he's got two bellies. And so when we harvest a pig. There's one belly. There's one belly on each side. Half a carcass. We split it in half.
0: And that's bacon.
1: That's bacon. So the deal is, right, that we have to eat, we have to use all those parts. And so that demand for individual parts changes throughout the year. So in the summer, we sell shoulders, front, front legs. Boston butts, picnics at an exceptionally high rate because that's what we make barbecue out of. That's what pork barbecue comes from. And so with this changed... All, every,
0: everything that says pork barbecue on a menu is a shoulder?
1: Normally, yep. Yeah. That taste that we essentially... And the, the texture and the taste and the flavor we associate with pork barbecue is a shoulder. It's a front leg. And so... That demand is significantly higher in the summer than it is in the winter. Because you get got all these knuckleheads like me. I don't go out and smoke a shoulder in the summer. When it's
0: 8 degrees outside. And when it's
1: 8 degrees outside. But, ah, we're going to do that in the summer. we got barbecues, right? That's a barbecuing thing. Pork line demand goes up in the summer because of barbecues.
0: So they stockpile that. We stockpile it in the freezer. Because mm-hmm. they know there's going to be a huge demand for that in the summer. That's right. And not such a huge demand for ham. For ham. In the summer.
1: So we accumulate hams over the summer for Christmas and Easter. Now, it's not the same ham that in July, right? We rotate that stock, but you you increase. <laughs> Make
0: sure you get the one in the back, yep.
1: That's first in, first out. But it's right. So they continuously rotate that stock around so that we've got supply of ham available for Easter and Christmas when we sell the vast majority of it. Not the majority. We sell a lot of it. We also export less, we export a lot of ham to Mexico. And so they actually take them as green. They cook hams that are not cured. So again, cultural difference, we've got a different market for these products. And so that product is gonna go, we export that all year long. And then when it's some time for easter we just slow down our exports. Ah, oh, we need more ham here. We've got more value in ham here. And so you've got the, the market's really, really complicated because you gotta get rid of all the pieces. And so they sell those pieces and they freeze some and they figure out how to meet the market demand the interesting bit is a fun fact. We need a big ham at Christmas and a little ham at Easter.
0: Because we don't have as many friends on over at no, Easter no, they, or there's, there's a
1: preference. Excuse me the other way around. We want a little ham at Christmas and a big ham at Easter. Probably because ham goes with something else at Christmas.
0: I wonder about Thanksgiving too.
1: Uh, not big demand for ham. Christmas and Easter, the two big markets. Yeah, turkey is the big market, but we need a small ham. We need an 18 pound ham and we need a 22 pound ham. That takes very different pig. And so we sort that. And, you know, it's, if, if, I don't know, I'm not a meat selling guy, right? I, but I've seen enough of that. It's a really fascinating bit of how they take all these sizes and shapes and pieces and go fit that into what the consumer wants today. But when we're back in this price thing, right, the interesting bit is the farmer's not making any more money. Why not? Um, Because the farm gate price, what we get paid at the farm gate.
0: Isn't changing.
1: Isn't driven by what the demand is the consumer. So it's really driven by what's processing capacity.
0: So if I'm a pig farmer, who's paying me? The guy who's butchering them? Yeah, the packer. Mm -hmm.
1: The packer processor.
0: And they pay you per pound?
1: Pay us per pound.
0: Or per pig? Per pound. So you have an incentive to grow large. Pigs. Well,
1: we have to grow it in the right window. It's a very, it's a there's a contract specification. You have to hit this weight window of the carcass, not of the, actually the live pig. And so we need a 212 or a 218 or 206 pound carcass. And so we're dropping a carcass in, and that's where you get paid the most, and you're just counted out. It's a whole long conversation about how we get what's the right weight and how do you optimize that. But demand there at that market. Is actually how many pigs are available relative to how many pigs they want to harvest, how many cattle are available to how many cattle they want to harvest. In a little bit, then so as consumer demand goes up, um, they're incented to harvest more. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As they get paying a higher price, say, hey, we we need more, so they bid the price up. So consumer demand is only indirectly related to short-term farm gate press, and. There's been a lot of work to try to figure out how do you balance that out, how do you make that work better, et cetera, et cetera. But um, long-term consumer demand, including export, has a huge driver on farm gate price. Short-term consumer demand doesn't have very much variation. So to give you an example, prices spiked in May of 2020, right? To go buy a a a pork loin was six or seven or eight or twelve dollars in the grocery store because we couldn't. they couldn't get it processed the price at the farm gate was damn near zero because the processor couldn't get people to work they didn't have any demand they couldn't they couldn't harvest pigs so there was no demand to harvest but yet there was still demand in the marketplace so that piece in the middle got disrupted so think about a pig farm today and the supplier a cattle farm today is like an auto parts supplier right general motors sells the car but general motors can't sell a car without all these auto parts suppliers giving them all the pieces to make the car and so when we've the to grocery today the farmer supplies the parts i.e the animals but that's part of a very long complicated chain to get it where it's at i mean you've probably seen and i'll just talk about the pork stuff right like well bacon's an obvious one bacon is not belly bacon is belly that's been fairly heavily processed So it's that processing bit that adds value. You can go to the store today and buy tenderloins that are pre-seasoned, or you buy chicken parts that are all pre-cooked and breaded and whatever, right? That's the further processing chain. So the, the pig or the chicken or the calf is just part of that. It's a piece of the total package, the value package we put out there with the consumers today. And the consumer continues to tell us they want to cook less and less, right? So you've got everything from Blue Apron where it's pre-prepared, but you have to cook it to literally ready to eat in the grocery store with like, you know, these pre-cooked or not pre-cooked. TV well, frozen dinners. TV, yeah. And they're sophisticated frozen dinners today, right? I mean, that's what's really coming down the pike. You'll see pre-cooked. We've got this grocery store in town here, Harvest Market, right? You just walk in there and Whole Foods or whatever. You can buy fully prepared meals that are already cooked and all they have to do is be reheated right there and they're in the thing, right? we so we speaking s- my language is you see that, right? That's a huge change in the food supply chain about where value is created. um, And that's less and less in making the part, i.e. the muscle. And the muscle's being transformed and that's part of the inflation bit in grocery.
0: Now, when you are a pig farmer and you have... You you know have I don't know how many we've talked about this for what is there like a thousand pigs on a farm or five thousand pigs on there's a lot of pigs pigs. that not this notion of there being ten pigs on a farm is probably not realistic, but um so are all of those pigs going to the same processor like they're contracted out to one place or do they split them up or today
1: most of the time they're going to one processor.
0: And then, are those, do they just do a yearly contract? We expect X amount of pigs and we'll pay you this much. That's it in a year. Most of the
1: time, they're long term, three to five year to seven year agreements. Okay. Um, and you do that because you've got to have some certainty that you've got a market for the animal that you want. And the same thing happens on the cattle side today that feedlots are contracted to a packer or two packers or, you know, right? So if I'm a uh, Jim Little pig farm and I've got, um, 10 different farms that I own, which is pretty typical today. I might have agreements with two packers, not one, uh, or three or whatever, but I would be con; those pigs would be contracted, cattle would be contracted, at least maybe not priced, but I have an agreement on where they're going to go so that I know that I've got a shackle to, to harvest those critters on the day I need to harvest those critters. And that's a big change in the market compared to 20 years ago.
0: So the pig farmers have a little bit security, even if the consumer price changes, they're still going to get the same amount for the pigs, essentially?
1: Oh, uh, it's still a market-based price.
0: Oh, well, I wouldn't sign that. I'd be like, I want you to pay me this for three years.
1: That's not how it works. <laughs> I
0: think I need to do the negotiating for you.
1: You would fail, Mr. Deluxe. <laughs> <laughs> right, so th- but there's a reason we have it that way, and that is, that, right, you want the up and the down. So you're in the market, right? And so you're saying I, I'm willing to take the risk. And then my job as a farmer is to figure out how do I mitigate. Um, and there's financial tools to do that. There's right. I mean, I can. And what you've seen today is is a movement away in, in the pig side, particularly not so much in the cattle side, but a movement away from live animal or carcass pricing to uh, pricing based upon the wholesale value, cutout value. So what's the value of the carcass? Uh, which tends to be a lot more stable and then uh, that allows both the packer and the farmer to participate in the up but they've minimized the risk of the down because that price is pretty stable and so you know in in a business it's often about price stability and that becomes really really important and so that's how they've negotiated the price through to say, listen, we've, we've got to be able to tolerate the up and the down. And then your job as a farmer is, is to use financial instruments, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, to protect the down. And so you say, listen, I can't accept a price below this. And so I need to protect that with some financial instruments called forward contracts.
0: What is that? What, what that's another whole podcast.
1: I we could talk for hours about how you use the Chicago Mercantile Exchange commodities markets to okay. protect price.
0: And that's what most pig farmers do?
1: Yep. We've got to have a way to protect price, both the input side, the corn side, and the pig sale side. And
0: so you basically pay into something that somebody's betting against you or betting for you that you're going to lose money?
1: There are speculators who are willing to take the opposite position. They think it's going to go up, and I think it's going to go down, and that's how the market works.
0: Very interesting.
1: It's another whole podcast.
0: Okay, we'll do an Economics 101 next time.
1: Okay, but you have to read Supply and demand before we do that.
0: What? Is that a book?
1: Yeah, there's a whole book. No, that's a Wikipedia uh, uh, the, page? Yeah, that's a Wikipedia page. <laughs> can you the, can start there. I
0: could do the Wikipedia yeah. page. All right, well, thank you everyone for joining us and Dr. Lowe for educating us on meat price. We went all over the place On um, price, grocery we prices. Grocery price, grocery price. And uh, tune in next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening and we'd love to hear from you too. Find us on Twitter. Our handle is at the round barn one. We may even share your comments on our next show. Please subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It's available on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. One last thing. We also offer a wide range of learning opportunities for folks who work with livestock and veterinarians too. You can learn more at online.vetmed.illinois.edu. See you soon.